Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. As far as college sports are concerned, the next few months are where the sausage gets made. Division One's working group will have to get into the nitty gritty of putting values into action while remaining under tremendous pressure from state and federal lawmakers who are wondering if the organization can fix itself. For several years, the Knight Commission has worked to create a sustainable and educationally focused model for Division I members to consider and even adopt. Privately, many Division I athletics directors, commissioners, and presidents agree that a change in emphasis and direction is crucial to regaining the public trust. But publicly, they appear to say something else. To help us understand the nuances of this financial proposal and why it could work to the benefit of Division I institutions and student athletes, I'm joined on the podcast by CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, Amy Perko, and commission member and former chief financial officer of Major League Baseball, Jonathan Mariner. Jonathan and Amy, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Karen. Good to be, good to see you, Karen. Thanks for inviting us. Jonathan, um, gosh, there was so much to take in at the at the Knight Commission meeting last week that was held at the NCAA convention. And Jonathan, one of the things you stated was that Division I is facing serious financial challenges. We've known that for some time, but you presented a framework of a potential solution for the broken financial model, which I personally had not heard uh, much about. So could you walk us through the parallels you've seen see between what professional sports faced in 2011 and how they were resolved? Sure. Um, you know, one of the things I didn't mention, but I thought maybe to add some additional context I, I shared here, uh, as I compare my experience in professional sports with what I've seen in the collegiate level, there are a lot of, uh, of, of parallels in a very favorable way that the collegiate level is kind of mirrored. For example, all of the different revenue sources that have come into college sports, you know, the TV rights deals, naming rights deals, all of those things have flowed into, into college sports in a really positive way. On the flip side, uh, you've also seen, you know, coaches salaries already. And, uh, and one of the things that the leagues have tried to address uh, was trying to control some of the spending that takes place you know, in their conference, in their leagues. And I mentioned 2011 in particular. Um, it was a very unique time in professional sports. It was the only time that all four professional sports had their collective bargaining agreements expiring in the same year. Turns out that the NHL players had the right to roll over the agreement another year, and they chose to do that. But at the very end of the day, uh, the NHL, the NBA, the NBA and, the, and the NFL all shut down their sports. And the reason they did it, and people didn't really connect the dots, but the reason they did it was to really reform their business model. You know, our observations have been that the business model in collegiate sports is broken. And, and as a parallel, the professional sports leagues all shut down their sports to, to address it. Uh, they thought it was a serious enough issue that they had to take serious steps to, to do that. And uh, in baseball, I mentioned also, uh, not that year, but earlier in 1994 and again in 2002, addressed their business model. And, and the, the key was having a model that allowed teams to at least break even and not just the big market teams. So give us an example of how, uh, just so we can grasp on this, how was it resolved? What was one way that, it, that both sides felt comfortable with this? You know, the, there, there are probably two broad frameworks that the different leagues have looked at. There are caps 
uh, and there are luxury taxes and there's hard caps and soft caps. And in fact, in a lot of our recommendations in our uh, care model, we talk about ways that that the collegiate uh, uh, that the, the colleges can address the 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 spending that takes place. All this revenue flowing in creates this pressure on spending, and the trick is to fix the business model. How do you control that spending? Um, uh, some of the leagues have put in place uh, caps, hard caps, and you hear them talking about uh, we have to let this player go. We can't sign this player because of that. Uh, that system is one of the tools that's been used. The other system that baseball used, that I'm very familiar with, is electric tax, and it's really designed to essentially drive behavior. Uh, you don't want to, and I know there are a lot of legal and trust issues about trying to control spending at the collegiate level, especially when it comes to salaries, but there are different ways that between penalties and rewards, you can actually control spending. And those are some of the things that we talk about in our care model. Okay, those two examples are really good. In a moment, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the luxury tax, but Amy, let me go to you. you you've been working on this and the Knight Commission is working on a robust financial plan that it calls for a values-driven approach to distributing money to division one programs. The Knight Commission has also advocated for a change in the distribution model, specifically involving revenues and expenses of FBS football. Walk us through what the current issues are, what trustees and presidents need to know, and how your proposals would work. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Uh, first, to be clear, over the past two years, we've released several different solutions um, as we uh, titled um, really our, our series of work, uh, Transforming the D1 Model. Um, and, and we released that after several years of study. This is well before any announcement that the NCA uh, was going to rework its constitution. Um, so we saw these pressures uh, coming um, and, and the pressures that are upon leaders. But our, our most recent proposal that, that Jonathan introduced uh, was released last September and it's titled Connecting Athletic Revenues to the Educational Model of College Sports. We've dubbed it the Financial Care Model with that fitting acronym. But in short, the proposal would impact 3.5 billion in annual shared revenues that, that flow into Division I conferences and institutions by uh, changing the distribution criteria for those funds, as well as impacting the use of the revenues through the different types of, of ways that, that Jonathan described. And, and the goal is clear. It's so that those revenues um, in the distribution criteria and in the way they're spent would be better directed toward athletes, education, health, and, and well-being. And <clears throat> those are the, 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 the principles that the NCA Constitution um, you know, prioritized. The, the, the Constitution was voted on just last week. And those are the principles, education, uh, health, and well-being. So our, our model really offers ways to put those principles into practice. Um, and again, to make clear that these are shared athletic revenue distributions. This does not impact the revenues that each school may generate through their own activities, donations, ticket sales. Um, but the shared athletic revenue distributions are through the NCAA, uh, through its March Madness revenues, uh, which for Division One is about over 600 million annually. The CFP, um, which I'll emphasize here, is a separate entity from the NCAA it's one of the most misunderstood facts among higher education leaders and sports fans. 
Um, and, and so the CFP generates more than 500 million annually, distributes that money. And then the division one conferences themselves through their own TV networks um, and championships uh, for division one, the, the bulk of that is generated by Power Five conferences, but you know that's over 2.7 um, billion. Um, and so this is a big number that can make a huge impact on the financial framework for college sports. And if I can, Karen, I'd like to just point out one other proposal that we have that goes beyond the care model uh, for FBS football and the college football playoff. Um, because some of our, um, I think, again, there's just a really basic misunderstanding on the part of so many about what the CFP is, who runs the CFP, what the NCAA can control and what it, what it can't control. And FBS football, the money's being generated there really is impacting the entire landscape of college sports. And we've made some simple proposals to the college football playoff. Again, that, that's a corporate entity separate from the NCAA. The NCAA doesn't generate any money uh, whatsoever from FBS football. And, and we've made a couple of really simple uh, reform recommendations. One, that athletes should be included in CFP governance. Athletes are included in the NCAA governance. They are not included in CFP governance. Number two, the CFP, college football playoff revenues, which again are more than $500 million a year, should cover the national cost for the sport of FBS football. FBS football national cost, like insurance, litigation, legal expenses, those are covered by NCAA March Madness funding. So there's a real dysfunction there that, that impacts a lot of things. And then number three, there must be financial transparency for CFP revenues. Uh, the NCA publishes an annual financial statement that shows where the March Madness money goes. Uh, the same should be true with, with the CFP and what happens with the CFP revenues. So that's it, you know, it, that's a summary of both our care proposal as well as CFP reform. And that would impact you know, the, the most significant revenues uh, of shared revenues that are flowing into Division One. So in a moment, I wanna ask you about what the current landscape pre-constitutional convention has looked like so people can compare and contrast. But Jonathan, I wanna slide in the idea of a luxury tax in here. Tell us about that. What makes it a good model and who might be currently implementing it that it looks like a good model to follow? Sure. Um, I have some experience with the luxury tax. It's something that Major League Baseball put in place. I mentioned earlier there are caps and there's luxury taxes. The difference is that with a cap, you've got really hard uh, uh, limits on what you can spend for a targeted area. Um, it's, it, it's really designed to control behavior. There's some soft caps, which means you can spend over a, a target, but you can't, uh, but there's a penalty. With a luxury tax, there is no prohibition about, about how much you can spend. Uh, you have the luxury of spending more than what's been uh, designated as the limit that you want to see, but you will pay a penalty or, or a certain you know, premium over that amount. Um, uh, Major League Baseball has that, has that, and it was designed to create you know, a drag on spending for player compensation, and it actually worked at, at, at the Major League Baseball level. Uh, the, the growth in revenue fueled by a lot of the unequal revenue coming in 
from media revenue, uh, it, it drove player compensation in the you know double digit you know teams uh, before the luxury tax. It ended up being in the single digits uh, in a more uh, balanced way, and so that was that's how how luxury taxes tend to work. And and um, in our one of our proposals, we talk about you know if if the goal is to try to in some way slow down or control spending. Uh, you can uh, designate levels of spending beyond which it may create either a penalty or a disincentive to receive revenue distributions from some of the national revenue that Amy just talked about. So it's the same theory, the same concept uh, in trying to control spending. So um, I'm dating myself a little bit here, but I do remember the days of George Steinbrenner and the New York Yankees. And I used to think to myself, how in the heck could the Kansas City Royals compete against the New York Yankees? And part of it was the luxury tax. Am I right on that or how, how does you, that work? You are. And, and you know, one of the other things you mentioned, Kansas City versus versus uh, New York, if you look at the NFL, the the cap allows the New York Giants to uh, allows the Green Bay Packers, a small market to compete with the New York Giants because they have some control of the spending. The luxury tax has that same uh, 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 that same effect. The other part of the equation, this gets back to what Amy was mentioning before in terms of some of the parallels. Major League Baseball also has a revenue sharing plan where dollars are, you know, from the larger clubs or kind of transferred to the smaller clubs under a formula. And one of the goals is to make sure that the money that's transferred goes towards player compensation. In a very similar way, we're saying as those increased revenues come into the into college uh, athletics. Uh, it should be targeted towards, you know, towards spending that supports these different, you know, targets, player, uh, athlete, you know, health and safety issues, spending across other athletic programs, as opposed to going to some of the compensation areas that that, are, that tend to be escalating. So it's a very similar uh, uh, approach that that can be that 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 has been effective in in, in professional sports. Could also, we think, help control spending at, at the collegiate level. It's interesting, we've had so many uh, media folks, commentators talk about, well, aren't we professionalizing college athletics? But in some ways you're taking the best of college, uh, professional sports and saying this might be able to help us create more a more level playing field. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really important. And uh, when I talked about the 2011 anomaly of all of them shutting down the sport, they realized that there needs to be some type of control. Otherwise you would have some really out of control spending. And, and you know, the spending of one team can drive the cost that affects all of the teams. And that's what we're seeing in college sports right now. So there are indeed a lot of parallels that we think can really help make a difference in, in, in collegiate spending. So let's build on that a little bit and look backwards for a second. Amy, if I'm a new president and I've not really dealt with athletics before, but I'm trying to understand why this change is so necessary, give us a look back three to five years. Where are we with um, the dominant of the, of the top tier of uh, Division I sports and what, what's happening to the rest of Division I sports? Yeah, no, great question. And I think to start out, you have to ask which institution which uh, first is this president going to be in division one? And if so, which, which division, because there really are four separate, uh, there is four separate classifications that have different financial models. The first is the, the, the schools in the power five conferences, um, or, or secondly, the, the, that's that sponsor FBS football. Um, the other group of schools that have FBS football would, are classified as the group of five, and they're outside the Power Five conferences. And let's just take those two as an example. So those offer FBS football, 
they all benefit in some ways from the college football playoff revenues. Clearly the power five much more so. Um, but if you look at the median in um, uh, net generated revenues from athletics, just of FBS football schools, of the power five, um, it, it's a median net uh, negative of, of uh, about $8 million. So there's institutional support or student fees, even for those schools in the power five. And this is according to NCA data. Um, of the group of five last year, um, and, and some of that was impacted by um, the, the pandemic, but not, not in such a significant way, it was 23 million for the group of five. Wow. Okay, moving to the non-FBS schools, um, those with FCS football, about 14 million, and, and Division One no football, about 13 million. So it's about the same. So right. the question is, from a presidential viewpoint, um, athletics and, and the Knight Commission's position is that athletics does provide a wonderful leadership opportunity for young men and women. But the question is, what should that investment be? Um, clearly, the Power Five are, are most are are generating you know huge, huge sums, and and but we've seen that it's still not totally self sustainable. But let's look at the revenues. We have data that show. You know, as those revenues have grown tremendously for those Power Five schools, coaches' salaries have grown at a rate three times faster than athletic student aid. So the revenues are not uh, resulting in more opportunities or even more money toward education, health, and well-being of college athletes. Our data show that, and and. Just uh, some recent examples over the past several months show that this inequity is actually getting worse, even as we approach, you know, an expanded CFP playoff that will generate more revenue. Um, just real quickly, eight FBS schools paid more than 90 million to buy out their head coaches contracts, eight, eight schools and um, eight school and a similar number uh, of power five schools recently, actually just three schools generated uh, or escalated coaching salaries to new highs, signing uh, coaches contracts worth 9.0 million annually. So again, the schools are not slowing down on seeking competitive advantages and creating these obligations that are going to further skew where we currently are. And that's why we believe it's absolutely critical for leaders to put the brakes on and do what exactly Jonathan described. We have to fix this financial model before we've created so many obligations and by these obligations have, have begun to transform the model without any clear um, direction, uh, legal analysis. And our model has been legally vetted. And we, we believe that, you know, we've done a lot of work to try to help leaders, uh, but just really concerned that there's a leadership vacuum right now. And we'll put a link to all of that work uh, in the liner notes for this particular uh, podcast as well. Jonathan, there's a question that's always run, run in my mind, but it's because I just don't know. But how much do coaches get paid in the NFL and the MLB? I mean, is it compa comparison to what college football coaches are getting? I, it, what, what I found interesting is that I almost reverse it. College uh, coaches are getting paid as much as professional coaches at this point. You're talking about anywhere from five to $10 million uh, for coaches' salaries. Um, okay. 
Okay. So I, I'm, I'm surprised that college coaches could pay that much, <laughs> given the disparity in revenue that the sport generates on a, on a comparative basis. Right, right. And that is subjected to all kinds of differences, including conference realignment, which is certainly upended the power, the power five as well. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about college athletes having access to negotiating a collective bargaining agreement. What do you see as the pros and cons of that idea? And could that potentially be a reality for the Power Five or some other programs? You know, no, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot of legal uh, analysis behind that. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't comment at that level. Uh, I, I do recall just from various headlines, there were there was talk several years ago about you know players withholding their services, basically saying they're not going to play unless something changed. You know, and when you think about the work stoppages, kind of using that that phrase broader than professional sports, it usually comes about comes about from one of two actions: either the players walking out or striking, which is what happened in baseball in in, in 1994. Or, you know, there's a lockout, which happens to be what's happening right now in baseball. But the other three uh, leagues did the exact same thing in 2011. Um, uh, But that usually is around a a conversation, if you will, a collective bargain conversation around work conditions. You know, there are certain topics that if there's a legally represented group, a a union, there's certain topics you have to bargain over. And and, uh, and we're not suggesting this, I'm not suggesting that there be any kind of a shutdown in college sports. On the other hand, I would make the observation that if uh, if college sports doesn't proactively address its model, uh, there could be some legislative uh, solutions that could be far worse than what you can negotiate uh, in a a more collaborative way. Um, and, you know, and, and whether there is going to be representation at the table, if you will, by players uh, is, is, is not something that they would have a legal right to do. But in some of our other proposals uh, by the Knight Commission, we've always advocated that there be some player representation in any of the different bodies that, that are governing college sports. And so we think their voice is going to be very important no matter what happens. Amy, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, I would just add to that that, you know, we have heard from legal experts that division one as it's currently going um, must contemplate two future scenarios one be prepared for a new model that includes collective bargaining and and athlete employees who are also students and then secondly you know a second alternative would be seeking congressional legislative protection for the current educational model um, we believe, the commission believes, that, that the help Division I is looking for from lawmakers will not happen without a commitment to change the financial framework. And uh, it's this chicken or the egg argument which comes first, but we believe leaders can't have that future in their own hands that they can commit because they know they have to change the financial framework. So we have a solution where they can show they're committed to ch- uh, changing this financial framework through the shared distributions. And, and that's something they can control. And we, we believe should be the centerpiece for this work that is happening now by Division I Transfer, Transformation Committee. We believe changing the financial framework must be the centerpiece. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little about work stoppages, but also, you know, there's always been rumors for years now about the possibility of a boycott of the Final Four, which is the most high profile event. Um, And certainly if that happened this year, that would happen in the middle of this constitutional process of trying to flush out 
Any any response to how much that might upend the process if the athletes were would to decide to walk this particular uh, final four? Either one of you. Well, yeah, I think I I want to jump in. I mean, let's let's you know take a step back. The last final four a year ago, there was no uh, athletes were still not allowed to have nil compensation. Right. We've seen a, a huge huge sea change on nil compensation. And so, you know, I think, you know, that this has been, will we'll go down as, you know, last year and this year, two of the most pivotal years in college sports and the years things change to be, you know, uh, more of a student athlete uh, friendly model, if you will. Um, so, you know, I think there, there's still obviously a huge question around, well, that the, the NIL compensation is from third parties and that's, based on what the athletes can generate. Now let's ask the question about, you know, what about the 3.5 billion annually in shared athletic revenues? And so again, that's why you look at the different examples we've offered. We have an example that models out 50% of the shared athletic revenues that a school receives must go toward athlete education, health, safety, and well-being. And, and kind of that percentage of shared revenues is can be analogous to the pro sports model where you look at you know what percentage of revenues go toward athlete salaries as an example so in our model we looked at and we modeled out and and leaders can go to our website to see how their institution compares against that type of an example a metric and I think it's really telling in terms of uh, what some institutions would have to do to shift how $5 million, $3 million is spent. I would say in that particular example, the majority of Division I meets it, but the great majority of the Power Five do not. Jonathan, I, I would, yeah, I would just add to what Amy has, has, has mentioned. Um, usually in a, in, in, in when you have an issue where there may be some services withheld or walk out or whatever, Typically, it's in exchange for some other demand. And uh, Amy has touched on something that I think may help, you know, mitigate or maybe avoid that happening. The fact that players now have the right to earn additional compensation from the from their NIL may help reduce some of the pressures there. But typically, when you have that kind of a standoff, uh, you know, the, the, the group that's walking out is saying, I want X in return. And it's not clear what the X would be at this point for that to happen, especially in a final force setting. The, the other observation that feeds into that, um, there is, uh, while there's a, 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 a union for the major league baseball players, you know, baseball, uh, like hockey has a minor leagues and the minor league players do not have a union. They're not represented collectively. Uh, and the reason is because they, their, their tenure within that bargaining unit is not very long. They, you know, you're only a minor league for, for a fixed period of time, whereas your major league career starts and kind of continues until you retire. Uh, and I see some similarities at the collegiate level, you know, for an athlete, especially who may be a junior or a senior who's going to withhold their services. You know, if you're not in a bargaining unit for, you know, for a long time to get the benefit of what you might be holding out for it, there's not as much incentive to actually take that action from my, the way I see it. Uh, and it's tough to have a bargaining unit. Um, not that there couldn't be one, but, but, but the, the alignment of interest over the tenure of the sport is get to be a little trickier when you talk about, you know, someone only being in the, in the, in the unit for two to three years versus in a professional setting, it's, it's much longer. So 
just some observations that that hopefully might not lead to that kind of an outcome. Do you think the transfer portal further exacerbates that problem as well? I think I think it actually helps from my perspective. I mean, I, I don't have the depth of knowledge and experience at the collegiate level, but you know, from an outsider's perspective, I always reacted to the limitations or movement of a player at the collegiate level. Not only you know having to sit out a year, but having to, at one point get your coach's permission to transfer. You know that kind of harkens back to you know the reserve clause in baseball, where player movement was a big deal. What has really fueled professional sports has been free agency. And so essentially college players have free agency now. And I think that's a plus that also, you know, reduces perhaps the tensions there. I want to add one, one comment to that. Again, the, the, the transfer rules being changed to be again, more athlete friendly or, or more fair to athletes to allow that flexibility without having to, um, you know, uh, sit out for a year, kind of serve a, a penalty for transferring, if you will, for for uh, Division One basketball and football. So, but but I think what has complicated the current environment in transfer is the mixing of transfer with NIL compensation. <laughs> but if I mean, let's take it at its basic level. If that is being done, if NIL promise of NIL compensation is being done with transfer, uh, you know, re recruiting inducements, if you will, that at least by what is written uh, would violate NCAA, um, would, would violate the NCAA rule, which is very minimal. Uh, it would also violate a number of state laws that, that say those can't, things can't be used for re recruiting inducements. Uh, the issue is there is no enforcement in, in place with regard to that, and everyone knows it, and you look at pro sports, pro sports have a stricter um, uh, stricter enforcement right now in place for re recruiting inducements for free agency, if you will, right. transfers, athletes transferring teams, then college sports, and that doesn't make much sense. You know, the, the college sports can't, whatever model, uh, you know, we have in the future, there, there have to be some guardrails and some rules around that um, so that it, it, it at least is as strict as professional sports. Yeah, it definitely feels like the wild, wild west right now. There's, there's no doubt about it. I want to shift gears one other direction. Amy, the Knight Commission produces such credible research reports and op-eds so that the public and scholars and higher ed leaders can consider alternative perspectives to the financial pressures and ethical challenges facing college sports. Has the Knight Commission ever worked with other national higher ed associations like the American Council on Education, the Association for Governing Boards, AACSU, and others to create partnerships and joint statements? If so, what do they have to say? Um, sure, great question. We have um, over the years worked with higher education groups, um, particularly around you know, just being available as a resource uh, we, we met with this, the higher ed secretariat last year that includes the leaders of all of those associations to let them know about our work, uh, the reports we had released at that point. Um, and in fact, uh, I'm headed to a, a, a program, AGB Foundations, just uh, occurring on Monday to, to do a session on uh, with Carol Cartwright on the trends in athletics. And I know our co-chair, Nancy uh, Zimfer just 
just did a program with AGB. So, um, you know, we, we look for more opportunities to do that um, because clearly uh, things are changing uh, quickly. Um, I would say in terms of working with those groups to provide kind of joint statements, uh, we haven't done that recently. And I think one of the reasons is that those groups, things again are changing so rapidly in college sports. I think those groups are looking for, um, you know, to, to, to really work out their own positions and looking to the NCAA for leadership on, you know, what position they should be taking. And, and right now the, uh, the NCAA as a staff is looking for the conferences to lead and, and the conferences are competing with each other. And it, it's, it, it's not a, a very clear picture right now in terms of, um, you know, the future. So, you know, I would say we, we would be hopeful that um, all of those higher ed associations would endorse um, our most recent, you know, care model approach. I think it's certainly, again, a way all of the, all of the principles are certainly in, in alignment with, with what those associations have said about college sports. And again, it's a way to put uh, principles into practice. Finally, for both of you, why is this such a crucial moment for folks to learn more about the challenges facing both higher education and college athletics? Either uh, one I'll of start you. and let Amy oh, uh, okay. uh, bat clean up on this one. <laughs> um, uh, I think in, in, in real sim simple terms, I think that for many people like myself who are huge fans of college sports, uh, it's going through a real fundamental change. And for as much as anyone fan might think, I would love for my school to win a national championship every year throughout. The lessons from professional sports is that dynasties aren't good for the overall sport. You want to have some kind of balance. You want to make sure that everyone has a chance to win, to compete. Uh, that creates uh, interest across the entire uh, industry. And I think uh, given some of the challenges that, that the schools face economically, I think for it to be sustainable and for the, for the, uh, the uh, you know the, the true college model where you know the the, the best interest, interest of the athlete the educational focus the academic focus for that to remain part of college sports you really have to pay attention to and 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 and, and support some of the things we're talking about otherwise it could become a professionalized uh, industry which is not what I think most people really would want or would, would really appreciate. Well said. Yeah, I, I can't add much more to that because that is the issue at its fundamental uh, point. And I think uh, for there are over you know a thousand Division One, two and three universities competing in college sports. The vast majority of those, you know, really all the vast majority use see athletics as an opportunity to help enrollment, driving enrollment, and and providing these. Uh, leadership and, and uh, you know, just developmental opportunities for young men and women. And you don't want to see um, the model at the top, um, the very elite power five, um, very commercial, big revenue impact the way athletics uh, functions at all of the other levels, because there's a, a massive difference uh, and yet, you know, some of what's happening at the at the very top, you know, could turn uh, some of the some of the legal rulings could be, you know, those athletes or employees. Well, what does that mean for everyone else? Even even with NIL, we're seeing uh, developments 
that now institutions are triggering uh, Title IX with the way they're operating NIL, that has huge impacts and, and will have huge impacts if, if other institutions start trying to do what you know, they see happening um, in the Power Five. Um, and so there are a lot of implications with some of the changes that are just quickly evolving uh, because of the competitive drive. And um, so, so it's a really critical time for leaders to really assess you know, what they want this model to be and to really understand all the consequences of, of those developments. Well, Jonathan and Amy, thank you so much. You've given both myself and my audience a lot to think about at a very critical moment in the evolution of college sports. And I'm really hopeful that uh, folks will take the hard, the hard work and dedication that so many people put into to creating the care model and to realize that we need to get back to our roots and our values. So thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Karen.